Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Conservative Party Leadership Hustings. I'm Isabel Hardman and I'm going to be joined by the final three contenders in this race to number 10, Penny Mordaunt, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. Now the contest has got rather heated in the last few days and so for health and safety reasons we decided to keep the candidates apart and actually grill them on the substance of what they were standing for. So you'll hear first from Penny Mordaunt, then from Rishi Sunak who's joining us down the line and then finally from Liz Truss. Do enjoy. Well thank you Penny Mordaunt for joining us for our spectator hustings. Please give us your one minute opening bid to be Conservative leader. Well, I think it's incredibly important that we win the next general election. And it's important to win elections, but the next one is really critical because unless we do, we will not lock in all the benefits that we have now having left the regulatory orbit of the EU. We won't consolidate that position. Labour or a Labour-led socialist coalition will drag us back in to that regulatory orbit. And they will not be able to have the vision that we have to respond to the mandate that the people gave us for a new direction for the United Kingdom. Okay, thank you. Well, let's move on to our first topic, which is the key dividing line in this contest, tax cuts. Do you propose significant tax cuts? How significant and how would you pay for them? So in this contest, I think that this is not the place to be setting out uh, a a new uh, tax policy on things like corporation tax. What I've chosen to do is focus on growth and competition. Clearly, next April, on the current trajectory Rishi's set us on, we are going to be one of the most uncompetitive uh, nations in the OECD. And that cannot be allowed to happen. We have to be able to compete. So there will need to be some changes. But exactly what and when is not the issue for for this contest. What I've chosen to focus on is growth. Because, yes, we've got to tackle inflation, but we also have to tackle the weak demand in the economy. And through supply-side reforms, focusing in on infrastructure, investment, uh, incentives and innovation, really turbocharging the economy, getting things to really happen on the the levelling up agenda, and we need to continue with that and we need to increase it. But I also recognise the need for some immediate targeted support. So are you turning the spending taps on? Is that what you're planning to do? So I think we need to recognise that we're not going to be able to slash government expenditure, as uh, some early candidates in this contest said, because because of the situation that we are going into. We do need to control expenditure. I want to focus on the things that are a priority to people. Uh, There's lots of things that government doesn't need to do that it's currently doing. But uh, we're not going to be able to make some of the the cuts that other candidates earlier in this contest uh, put forward. What we do need to do is to grow the economy and we need to help people who are really in dire straits. So that's why I've got these targeted uh, measures to, to really support them. It does sound to me like you're heading towards higher borrowing, though. So we, it's important that uh, important that we get our um, balance the books and get uh, spending under control. We've come through, obviously, a, an enormously difficult period where we've been spending huge sums. Um, I have set out one very simple fiscal rule. I haven't put others in place because chancellors will end up breaking them. Uh, so we do need to uh, uh, reduce our, our debt, but 
we also need to recognise the very volatile period we're going into. And uh, so I'm not setting out uh, um, any further fiscal rules, um, certainly in this contest, and that would be the one rule that would cover uh, my administration. Just on monetary policy, is it the Bank of England's job to control inflation? And if so, do you think it's doing that job well? So it is. Um, I think that there certainly have been issues having read some of their correspondence that's come into the Treasury uh, about their performance in that respect. But that is that is their role. I'm not going to change their, their independence in, in uh, any way. Uh, what, but what we also need to focus on is the weak demand in, in the economy as well. And that's what I focused on. That's what the supply side reforms will do. OK, let's move on to net zero. Are you committed to the net zero target? Yes, I am, and the interim targets. But I think we have to change the narrative on this and and change slightly our approach. This has got to work for consumers, not just because it's not a good idea to clobber consumers, but because unless it does, we're not going to meet those objectives. The things that stop people getting an electric vehicle are not because they don't care about the environment. It's because they know they're going to have to uh, uh, change what time they set off to go to their place of work in order to recharge and, and come back. It's very, very practical things. So we clearly need better products. We need more innovation. Uh, and we need to also make sure that uh, the, the costs are tolerable uh, for individuals. Secondly, this has got to be part of the growth story and should be part of the growth story. Uh, We could be creating many, many jobs out of this over the next few years, millions of jobs and higher wage jobs. So again, we have to build that into the narrative. Again, focusing on the the four eyes that I've outlined will help do that. And finally, and perhaps explain those four eyes. So infrastructure, uh, investment. Uh, supporting innovation, as I've described, and incentives. So really looking at not just rewarding people for doing what they were doing anyway, but how actually you you crowd in funds to particular missions that you're really looking uh, to set up. So we've set out today in the uh, press uh, some detail on what that looks like and how we would facilitate that at a local level. Uh, We need more powers at a local level. We need some fiscal devolution as well. And we need people to be able to grow those wealth firms, um, funds, um, development corporations we, we want to uh, introduce in certain areas uh, to get that really motoring, to get the growth back in the economy. But just finally on net zero, the other thing that is really, really critical is, and very important to me personally, is our, uh, is our national resilience and security. Uh, I rewrote this country's resilience strategy during COVID and uh, Net zero needs to be part of the story in terms of that, uh, our energy security uh, and just really our, our ability to, to stand on our own in that respect. And that's why I was against certain projects that would make us uh, vulnerable. Now, just on accountability on net zero, you're obviously planning to have a, a long and glorious reign as prime minister, but chances are you probably won't still be in power by 2050. So how are you going to hold yourself to meeting the targets in in the interim to ensuring that your government, while you're in power, is making the necessary progress rather than loading that burden onto future governments, as is so often the case in our political cycle? So governments, uh, believe it or not, are not the the answer to everything. The, The real answer to this 
is scientists, innovators, entrepreneurs, people who are really passionate about, about this, and demonstrating and encouraging people why it's in their interest and their children's interest that we do these things. So we need to do more on the narrative. We need to do more to enable people to contribute to this agenda. Uh, we need to put out there the problems that need solving and be more explicit about that and incentivize people to come up with those answers. This is about the people of this country delivering those targets. Government can do things to help and incentivize and support and remove obstacles. But what will, what will ensure this works and what will ensure that legacy is letting people contribute to that mission. Are you expecting that zero to push the tax burden up even higher? No, I don't, I don't think that is a, a, a foregone uh, conclusion. But that's the Treasury's estimate, isn't it? So on our current trajectory, I mean, there are clearly <laughs> lots of disagreements about our current trajectory. And one of the only moments of harmony uh, in some of the debates we've had have, has been about how uh, our ability to compete or lack of our ability to compete in uh, the, the foreseeable future is, is not uh, right for us. Uh, we need to focus on growth. We need to focus on competition. A lot of the work I've been doing in trade has been about enabling smart people, ideas and money to come together to solve some of these problems. Uh, we are one of the, the game changing nations in this respect. Uh, and although people look at our, um, our contribution to net zero and say it's tiny in comparison to the world, it's not when you think about our knowledge transfer, our science base, our entrepreneurs, um, our legacy of working with other nations to help them uh, make that transition or leapfrog uh, uh, into uh, a modern economy and, uh, and ensuring that they can meet their targets too. Let's move on to another issue which is of real interest and concern to spectator readers in particular, which is the online safety bill. Do you support it in its current format? I do support the bill. I would want to make progress on it. But I do understand the concerns that there are uh, around how you define particular things in law and uh, uh, the chilling effect that it might have on freedom of speech. I think our government's got a good track record on freedom of speech. <laughs> I think that uh, there's always more we can do, but we have taken a, a real stand and a real grip on uh, some of the issues affecting, particularly on campuses and uh, and elsewhere. Um, I'm confident that we will be able to put a bill through that provides those reassurances, but clearly there are some pretty horrible things that need to be gripped and that's what the bill does. So the issue of concern for the spectator is uh, that, well, our argument is that it would outlaw free speech by creating a new category of legal but harmful. What does legal but harmful mean to you? So it is difficult to define, this is the weak point, mm -hmm. because it is difficult to define these things in law, because what, um, uh, you know, what might offend one person uh, might be perfectly all right for for another um, and I think unless you can really define that in law uh, there's a problem but we we do have existing laws um, where people are causing real material harm to people when when people are stalked for example um, that I think we could draw on but I do recognize the need that any law we're putting through has to have clarity and if we can't provide that clarity it's not going to work so I'm prepared to look at those issues. Someone being followed and monitored online is, is very different to 
somebody being distressed as the bill itself puts it in one of its clauses by something that somebody else is saying online. I mean, we all have our different trigger points. So how would you protect that? That's one of the issues that one of your rivals, Kemi Badenoch, has, has referred to, the hurt feelings clause, I think she's put it as. Yes, but I, I don't think this is about hurt feelings. I think this is about um, elements of stalking or uh, um, causing really severe distress mm-hmm. uh, to people. But again, uh, this bill is very targeted at at other I- issues. I think we also need to look at uh, the business model of some of the platforms that we're talking about, um, uh, platforms that uh, one suspects are, don't have real people on them and how some of those accounts and bots are being weaponized to uh, to cause distress or spread in- misinformation. Um, but I, I think the bottom line is unless you can define this categorically in law, it's not going to be a good law and therefore best not make it. Let's talk about the union. Are there any circumstances in which you would agree to a second Scottish independence referendum? I think this is a a settled question. Uh, We've recently had uh, a referendum and this is not uh, going to be something that I'm going to be looking at. We, We have so many more priorities and I think the people of Scotland... Uh, want us to focus on the things that are of genuine concern to them cost of living uh, ensuring that the Scottish government is actually delivering for them on health care and other issues so uh, no I, I, I'm, I'm not looking at that and your predecessors have made various attempts to try to strengthen the case for the United Kingdom panicked trips over the border <laughs> or not going over the border depending on what the Scottish Conservatives uh, ask of the uh, the Westminster leader fluctuating union units within Downing Street so we talked about the negative plan for the union I suppose in terms of no second referendum what's your positive plan for it so I think it's only really at times of celebration or crisis that we pull together as as the four nations our diversity is actually a massive strength just the take the nhs how the different systems work together which suits their their local area it's actually a huge potential and opportunity for learning for for best practice so the systems we have are good i also think that our our culture and it's it's about english regions as well as the the devolved uh, uh, um, nations we ought to celebrate that more because i think although we say at the dispatch box we talk about tax dividends to um, scottish households that's not really w- what is going to hold the union together it's the shared mutuality it's our history uh it's our culture so i've been really interested in uh, looking at these types of issues and I've interviewed a lot of people myself including um, the the dreaded BBC which is a, a much loved institution um, but doesn't sometimes seem to love the country back uh, and looking at things that they've done that work and uh, giving them ideas um, I've campaigned, uh, as you know, for the UK theme to be brought back which sounds a trivial thing but actually it was so loved by everyone across the four nations it was even played by uh, fishery protection vessels out over the water to warn the french they were around it was it was part of our our culture and it was written by a, a refugee and it was his love letter to the nation 
wouldn't it be amazing if we did, if we if we had a project to write the new UK theme? I think it's those sorts of things that get people thinking, get people excited, get people thinking about what it is that we we are as a uh, as a nation, and we ought to be doing more of that. Uh, and Whitehall ought to remember that it it is the government of the United Kingdom, even though some of its uh, remit is in health, for example, limited to England. We should talk about the United Kingdom more. Would you commit to going to Scotland once a month, either yourself or taking the cabinet up there? I I think the Prime Minister needs to travel. I think uh, other people have had all of my best ideas. I think listening to people who know what's going on in their area is really powerful. And it also helps you uh, calibrate your mind when you're looking at policy that's that's coming up and forward. I think, though, that uh, although you can do those things, you need a, a much more steady drumbeat of uh, visits and in engagement. And that is hard because Whitehall is very centrifugal and it pulls, it pulls people in. But I do think that is important. Um, and I certainly would see that being part of my regular week. Now, it's fair to say that this contest has been quite energetic in terms of the briefings and the hustings and so on. You've complained yourself about negative campaigning from, from other camps. You've all been tearing chunks out of one another one way or another in, in this contest. So what... I don't think I have. <laughs> You've been, you have been having a good debate in the televised we've been, hustings. We've been having a good debate, yeah, yeah. I think. But that's I think that's par for the course. I think, I mean, the... The first thing I said to my campaign team is we would campaign as we would govern. And it goes back to my opener. If we do not win an election, everything that we have worked for so hard over the last few years will be for nothing. So we've got to come out of this in good shape. I hope the rest of the contest will be about building a team and and forging that. And what an opportunity, you know, Sorry, apologies to the British public, but they're going to have a month of this. It's a month of the Conservative Party on uh, send and receive. And that is an opportunity for us to demonstrate that they should stay with us, that they're excited about our ideas um, and and that we're positive people that want the best for the country. So I hope we get, that's the kind of flavour of the contest going forward. Going forward. So thus far, do you think the contest has damaged the Tory brand? I think we've not been helped by some of the the TV formats. Um, I I have conducted my campaign in a way that I think is needed and has been the right thing to do. Now, more than ever, we've got to restore some positivity and some professionalism to what we do. And uh, I... uh, I think it's really important that we don't just say we're going to do those things, we actually do them. What's the first thing you do if you won to bring the party back together? So I think the thing that makes my colleagues anxious is our ability to deliver. That's that's the most pressing thing. They want to see people reducing the pressures on the NHS and opening up access to healthcare by Christmas. They want to see us make a tangible difference to that. They want us to grip the cost of living issues and be ahead of the curve on where we're going to have to provide extra support. And so who is round the top table is really important. Cabinet, I've said I'm going to have a tighter cabinet. It's uh, currently 
crazy how anyone could make a decision with, you know, uh, two football teams in that room. I don't know. Um, so a tighter cabinet, empowered ministers of state, really, really effective government and reform uh, in Whitehall. I also think they, they want to see the party being brought together in terms of the, we've got so many caucuses and clearly it's been a, a, a contest to date where fault lines have been stamped on and we need to set out a vision that will unite the party and we need to keep them focused on what happens if we don't unite and win the next general election. It's a, diff- it's a difficult and large coalition to hold together. We have to remember that our majority was one on the lowest turnout for 100 years in very unique circumstances. But I think the platform I've set out, which is focused on the real bread and butter issues for people, what their constituents are really worried about, growth and competition and safety and security at home is one that will reach across blue wall, red wall, into all of the parts of the United Kingdom and every demographic. And certainly the, the thing that I'm very proud of in our campaign is it appears to be having that reach to the general public. Penny Warden, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you, Rishi Sunak, for joining us for our Spectator Hustings. It's your turn to give us your one minute opening bid to be Conservative leader. Thanks, Isabel. And thanks, everyone, for listening. The most important question facing our country right now is how do we get a grip of inflation and get our economy growing quickly again? Now, my answer to that question is heavily inspired by our party's greatest post-war leader, Margaret Thatcher. She rightly believed that inflation was the ultimate enemy. And like her, what I want to do is get a grip of inflation now and not do anything that would make it worse. But I'll also get the economy growing fast again by undertaking a similar set of radical reforms to her on the supply side. I want to cut EU regulations and unleash the benefits of Brexit. I want to reform our tax system to boost investment and innovation. And I will reshape our education system because our children's education today is our economy tomorrow. Thank you for that. And on to our first topic, which unsurprisingly is taxation, the big dividing line in this leadership contest you stand out from the other candidates and have made a virtue of doing so in that you are opposing tax cuts now uh, are you actually sticking to exactly the same tax and spend policy that you've been pursuing under Boris Johnson's premiership so what i've tried to do throughout this contest is be honest with with everybody about how I see the economic challenges we face. And I think people deserve that from their leaders. And it's key to restoring trust in politics is that honesty. Now, I think we have a really significant challenge with inflation. And it's right that we grip it as the number one priority. Inflation makes everybody poorer. It erodes savings. It reduces people's living standards. It pushes up mortgage rates. So my priority is to grip that and not do anything that will make it worse. Uh, I will deliver tax cuts and we'll deliver tax cuts that drive growth, but I'll do so in a way that's responsible. Uh, And that's what I believe, as I said in my opening pitch, I believe that was what Margaret Thatcher would have done. And she got that inflation was something that you needed to get out of the system. And that will be my priority if elected prime minister. But I'll also make sure that we drive growth in our economy and do that by reforming the taxes on investment and innovation, because that's how you get growth and productivity. It's making sure that we drive those things. Margaret Thatcher did not see a record-breaking tax burden, though, did she? Taxes are at a 72-year 
high and growth is flatlining. So how can you cite Margaret Thatcher when that's our position at the moment? Well, Margaret Thatcher also didn't have a once in a century pandemic to contend with. And that's why we're in the situation that we're in now. You have to remember what happened. The recession that we experienced because of COVID was extraordinary. Uh, Our borrowing and our debt went up to levels that we haven't seen since World War II. And we had to do an enormous amount to support the country through that, public services, businesses, families. And I don't think anyone thought that we wouldn't have to pay that back. Uh, or that that would have an impact on things going forward. And I think it's right to just be honest about that. And that's my view. And I think it's really important as a moral issue that we get our borrowing and debt under control. But also that is key to making sure that we grip inflation. And that my priority is very much to deliver tax cuts. We actually started just this month by raising the amount that you can earn before you pay any national insurance. It's a really progressive tax cut for people. Uh, I've made sure that we will have an income tax cut in this parliament that's fully paid for in all the plans. And this autumn, I've also set out plans already to reform business taxation, to boost investment and to boost innovation. And those are the things that we need to do if we want to unlock growth. Uh, And you talked about growth not being as strong as we would like. I gave a lecture in in February this year about my view on how to drive up growth. And and a big part of the answer is getting businesses to invest more and to innovate more. And I know that we can reform our tax system to do that. And I'll deliver that in the autumn. Now, one thing you haven't mentioned in all of that is making government smaller. That was something you talked about a lot when you were a backbencher. Have you changed your mind since being in government? Oh, absolutely not. And, you know, I think the state should be strong, but it should also be nimble and as dynamic as possible. What we need to do is get away from a mentality where we focused, you know, a lot on what we were spending and what we were announcing. And we need to focus a bit more on what we're getting for that and making sure that we're prepared to go and reform things and drive up productivity in the public sector so that the the outcomes people see, their experience of seeing their GP, getting their driving licence, making sure social care works for them, having crime reduced in their communities, all those things they actually see very clear change on. And that would be my priority is about delivery. It's about being willing to do some different things, being willing to challenge consensus uh, and change leadership as required in public services, better use of technology and data. Uh, and get better outcomes for people. And we know that that works. If you look at one of the great achievements of the Conservative government since 2010, you know, for me, it's the education reforms that Michael Gove and Nick Gibb and others uh, managed to get through. And that didn't require more money. That required a way of working that was different. And as I said, challenging consensus, reforming public services. And now millions of children are better off as a result and learning more as a result. You know, I think that to me shows what conservatism at its best can do when it when it comes to public services. And that's the example I'd like to emulate. OK, well, let's move on to our next topic, which is climate change and net zero. Are you committed to the 2050 net zero target? Yes. And I, I come at this you know, first and foremost as a as a dad and I have two young girls and they don't ask enormous amount about my job for the most part. They're not that bothered. Um, but the one thing they do ask me about is what I'm doing on the environment and on climate change. And as I think that's a very conservative thing to care about. You know, I care very much as a conservative about the inheritance that we leave our kids and grandkids. 
you know that the inheritance we leave them on the public finance is important to me. But equally, I think the environment that we leave them is also important. So I, you know, that's why I believe that we should get there. But I also believe that we should get there in a way that carries people with us. Uh, and there's no point trying to do something where we can't have broad support for it. And that means not necessarily running there the fastest or the hardest or doing so in a way that is not positive. We've got to make this about how the innovation that that transition will bring is going to be positive for people, how it's going to lower their bills, how it's going to create jobs and prosperity in parts of the country that maybe haven't seen as much of it in the past. And I think if we can make it about those things, we can bring people with us. So to be clear, you don't want Britain to be a world leader in tackling climate change. I think we, we, we already are. If you look at our carbon emission reductions over the past 20, 30 years, we've decarbonised our economy faster than any other large economy. And as you saw from our leadership of COP last year, we've also demonstrated leadership in lots of other areas um, of the agenda. But I think we need to make sure when it comes to these quite crunchy questions of of how we do things in a way that impacts our economy. You know, we're doing that in a balanced way. And there are ways that we want to lead. For example, we want to lead on innovation and pioneering the new technologies that are going to help us make the transition. But we need to have a mind as well about what's happening around us so that we don't damage our economy disproportionately in our path to net zero. I think that's a very reasonable approach to take. So I suppose one of the, the ways in which a lot of candidates, a lot of spectator readers might argue uh, would damage the economy is if green taxes, taxes to fund reaching net zero uh, more widely go up. Uh, surely, given the Treasury, the department you until recently led, estimates the cost of net zero is going to be £60 billion a year. That's going to have to add to the tax burden. Well, I think there's a couple of things on green levies. There are lots of people who think green taxes should be removed from energy bills. And that sounds appealing for, sh- for sure. But those, those levies actually go and pay for specific things. They pay for energy that we're all benefiting from at the moment. And in particular, they pay for offshore wind, which um, thankfully is now much more affordable uh, as a source of energy than it was a decade ago as a result of the innovation that's happened. So when people say they want to scrap these green levies or green taxes... Uh, what that means is they're going to borrow money to do that or they're going to put up taxes somewhere else. Uh, And that's worth billions of pounds a year. So I guess the question for the people who want to scrap them is where's that money coming from? Or are you just putting up taxes elsewhere? Are you adding to our borrowing? And more generally on the cost of net zero, I think it is really hard to just put a single point estimate on it. The Treasury in the past has published lots of scenarios And the reason it's hard to put a single point estimate on the cost of net zero, I think it is hard to put a single figure. And I know the Treasury has published various scenarios in the past. But the reason it's difficult to say this is the number is because of innovation. And the technologies that are going to help us get there are changing radically by the year, the cost. And offshore wind is a great example. A decade ago, offshore wind power costs about £140 a an hour and now it's down to 40 pounds and you can see the same with electric batteries where the costs have come down dramatically over the course of the last several years and that's happening across the board Uh, and if you look at all parts of our energy transition there's an incredible amount of innovation happening often led by British scientists British research British companies and that's great because that ultimately means 
British jobs and British prosperity. That's why I think this can be a positive thing, but it's why it's also hard to say with great certainty when it's going to cost this amount. And in terms of great certainty, are you prepared to pledge that the overall tax burden won't go up as a result of uh, your government's attempts to meet net zero? I mean, my, my, my priority is to cut taxes, right? Of course, I want to cut taxes. I'm a conservative. I want people to keep more of what they earn. I want businesses uh, to be encouraged to invest and to innovate. I want to boost the economy in the long run. You know, I want to deliver all those things and I will deliver all those things. And actually, I set out a tax plan earlier this year when I was still chancellor that that explained how we were going to do all those things and what taxes we were going to cut. What I'm saying is I just want to do that responsibly. I want to make sure we get a grip of inflation because that is the economic priority now that if we don't get a grip of it now, it will cost families much more in the long run. And that is not something that we should be doing. And, you know, once we've got that under control, I'm confident I can deliver that tax plan and confident that people's taxes can start falling. Let's move on to our next topic, which is the online safety bill. Do you support it in its current form? So again, I come at this first as a, as a parent. And I, as I mentioned, I have two young girls who are at the age where they're starting to go online more. And, you know, that's, that's I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm quite worried about all of that. And I sit down with my, my wife and we talk about it. I'm concerned about what they could end up looking at. And I think the exposure to explicit, sometimes horrific material at such a young age is wrong. And we've got to find a way to protect children against that in the same way as we do in the offline world, so to speak. Um, so that, that's my first start. So I think we do need to, to have something that does that. But with the bill, I think the challenge we've got, and that's why I'm, I'm glad the government's paused the bill so we can refine our approach here, that the challenge is whether it strays in the t- into the territory of suppressing free speech. And the bit in particular that, that has caused some concern and questions is around this area where the government is saying, look, here's some content that's legal, um, uh, but harmful. And it's uh, that that's this kind of area which I think people rightly have said, well, what exactly does that mean? And that's the bit that I would want as prime minister to go and look at to, to make sure that we get that right. So you're pledging to potentially scrap the legal but harmful section. I, I, and again, I know you're trying to push me into the direction of, of getting a firm pledge. What I'm saying is I, I do think we need to have a way to protect children against harm, as I said, and I say that first and foremost as a, as a parent. But I do want to make sure that we are also protecting free speech and the legal but harmful bit is, is the one that I would want to spend some time as Prime Minister going over and making sure that we're getting that bit exactly right. And I can't tell you, the, the right, what, you know, what the right answer at the end of that process will be, but I think it's fair that people have raised some concerns about that and its impact on free speech, and I think it's right that those concerns are properly addressed. Okay, thank you. We'll move on to the United Kingdom and holding the union together. Are there any circumstances in which you would agree to a second Scottish independence referendum? Look, well, this is this process is now playing out in the courts, and the Supreme Court will make a decision. You know, I, you know, I, you know, my, my, I, I think uh, I, I hope that they will they will decide that you know it's rightly. For the constitution, it sets out how that's meant to work. So you know, that court process will play out. My my general view on the matter is, I I care very deeply about the union, and I think of all the challenges we've got 
ahead of us now. I think most people in Scotland especially would agree that that's not the priority right now is to have a, a divisive referendum. The priority for all governments that represent them and administrations that represent them is to tackle the economic challenges that they're facing with the cost of living. And that's what I certainly will be focused on doing. And it, you know, I don't think arguing about another referendum now is, is remotely the right priority. And so what would you be doing positively to strengthen the case for the union, given the reason the SNP are pursuing the idea of a second independence referendum is in part because there is still a significant proportion of the Scottish population that at any time favours another referendum and indeed independence. Yeah, I think what the UK government can do is demonstrate on the ground in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland how it is making a difference to people's lives. And we've started doing much more of that through things like the Leveling Up Fund, where the UK government is talking directly to communities in Scotland and then delivering change in those communities. That's, that's been something that we've done that's new. And I think it is working really well. And it's changed the conversation and people can see very clearly some of the, some of the benefits that result from that. I think another thing we can do is talk emotionally about it. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, you can make practical cases uh, for, for the union and economic cases. But actually, to me, it's, it's much more emotive than that. It's about the values that bind us as a United Kingdom. And I don't think we should be afraid of making that emotional argument for the United Kingdom uh, from the heart, as well as the practical um, argument for it and demonstrating it. And that's what I'd, I'd like to try and do. And where would you be doing that? Would you be spending a lot of time in Scotland yourself? There have been times when uh, previous Tory leaders have uh, not necessarily been welcomed north of the border. Yeah, I mean, I think people can already see that I take that seriously. I mean, I was the Chancellor who set up a economic campus for the government and for the Treasury in Darlington. And not only did I set it up, and it's going well, it was going incredibly well when I, when I left, and I'm sure it still is. Um, I also spent a lot of time there myself personally and ensured that all my ministers also did uh, in the department because it's not enough just to set up these things. Actually, if you want to demonstrate that they matter to you, being there is really important. And I've already changed how the department works in, in my own small way as Chancellor for our Northern Campus. And you would expect me to to do, I think, something similar with regard to the union. You know, I'd, I'd want to be in all parts of the union, making the positive case for it and engaging with people. I mean, that's part of the job, but it's a part of the job that I do take seriously as, as people hopefully can have seen how I did it as Chancellor. Right, well, on to our final question, which is on keeping the party together, having talked about keeping the United Kingdom together. Do you think that this leadership contest has been good for the Conservative Party, both in terms of public perception and in terms of your colleagues having much of a chance of getting on with one another in the coming months? Well, I, you know, I think it's always good to debate ideas, right? And that is something that is, it's good, it's refreshing, it's important that we have those debates and it, and it makes sure that we challenge ourselves and we're getting everything right uh, as we figure out the right agenda to present to the country. Uh, so that part of it is, is healthy and is, and is good. Uh, but I think also it demonstrates the enormous range of talent that we've got in the party, right? As, you know, I've, I've been really proud to stand on platforms with my colleagues. It, it demonstrates, I think, the breadth 
and variety of talent that we've got and demonstrates to me that the Conservative Party really is the party of opportunity and aspiration. And I think actually to take a moment to, to reflect on that is, is worth doing and we should be afraid to champion that. Uh, and I think whoever wins will try very hard to unite the party. For me, that's about building a team that draws on all the traditions and talents of our party, which is a broad church, putting the best people in the jobs and continuing to conduct the rest of the campaign in an incredibly positive tone, which I've, I've tried to do so far. So I think, you know, I, I think that's all entirely doable. But the main thing is to reflect on the fact we've got some fantastic people at the top of the Conservative Party and everyone should be really proud of that and excited about the future as a result. So what's the first thing you'll do on becoming Conservative leader to try to unite the party? You talk about getting a you know a good team around you, getting lots of different people into, into your cabinet. What's, what's the priority in terms of healing some of the wounds that have opened up recently? I think it's, it's, it's what I said. It's actually the, one of the first things you do is, is put a team together as Prime Minister. It's a very visible demonstration of your commitment to delivering what I said, which is drawing on all the talents of all the wings and traditions in our party and putting fantastic people uh, around you to help you deliver for the country. And so I think that is by far and away the most important priority at the beginning and how we will bring people together and serve the British people to the best of our ability. Would that include Liz Truss and Penny Mordaunt? I've, I've been particularly careful, as I, as I, I assume the others have been as well, not to get into the, the, the business of starting to talk about specific jobs and specific people. But uh, you know, as I've been very public about in all the platforms I've been on and on telly as well, I, I've got nothing but res- enormous respect and admiration for all of the people who stood in this contest. And I've been very public about that. And as I said earlier to you as well, we've got some fantastic people, all of whom bring something unique and special to the contest, to government, to the party. And as a general thing, I think any leader would want to draw on the fullest range of talents that that they had. Rishi Sunak, thank you so much for joining us at our hustings. Well, Liz Trust, thank you so much for joining us for our spectator hustings. So it's over to you to give us your one minute opening bid to be Conservative leader. We're in a difficult situation as a country. We're facing the biggest war we've seen on European shores for a generation. We also face a massive economic crisis. We only have two years before the next general election to get our economy back on track, as well as making sure we continue to stand up to Putin in Ukraine. I'm the candidate with a bold plan to reduce taxes, to unleash growth across our country, to level up in a conservative way through new investment zones. And I've shown that I can deliver. At the Foreign Office, I've stood up to Vladimir Putin, putting on the toughest package of sanctions, delivered the NIP bill to Parliament. And at trade, I struck dozens of trade deals, even though people said it wouldn't be possible, including with countries like Japan and Australia. I'm ready from day one. Thank you. On to our first topic, which is the key dividing line in this contest, tax cuts. So tell us about your proposals for tax cuts. Are they significant? How are you going to pay for them? I think it's very important that in the difficult economic scenario we're in now, we don't raise taxes because raising taxes will choke off growth. It will make us harder for us to pay our debt back later. 
what I propose is reversing the national insurance increase. It was a manifesto commitment that we wouldn't increase national insurance. I think we should fulfil that. I also don't want to increase corporation tax because we need to attract the investment to drive business and growth right across our country. I'd also have a temporary moratorium on the green levy, cutting money from people's energy bills. Uh, All of those tax cuts are affordable within our current uh, fiscal position. We'd still be able to pay debts down over three years. But what we wouldn't be doing is immediately trying to balance the books following COVID, which has been a massive economic shock. So it sounds like you're not particularly worried about how this is going to be paid for. No, that's not true at all. I am very clear it can be paid for within the existing fiscal envelope. The the taxes that I'm cutting cost £30 billion. That is affordable. And what I'm saying is that if we raise taxes now, that will lead to lower revenues, which will make it harder to balance the books in future. You don't get growth by increasing tax. And you're not worried, as Rishi Sunak has, has repeatedly argued, that this will lead to even higher inflation? The best way to control inflation is monetary policy. We already know that inflation is due to fall next year. I want to see a tougher Bank of England mandate in the future whilst keeping the bank independent. But my tax cuts will actually help grow the supply side of the economy, which will relieve inflationary pressures. So you don't think the Bank of England is doing its current job that well? The Bank of England mandate was last set in 1997 in completely different economic times. What I'm saying is we need to look at it again and make sure it's fit for purpose and benchmark it against international independent banks. Okay. Well, you mentioned the green levy, so let's move on to net zero, our next topic. Are you committed to the 2050 target? I am committed to the net zero target, but I want to achieve it in a way that doesn't penalise businesses and families. How is that possible? Well, first of all, I would have a moratorium on the green energy levy while we look at alternative ways of delivering net zero. Have you got time to do that? I'm a free... I'm a free enterprise environmentalist. I believe in delivering environmental goals through enterprise and attracting investment into the UK. Yes, we do have time to do it. Uh, The temporary moratorium is affordable. I put it on general taxation and I would immediately have a spending review and budget and also have a long term plan to reform the public sector and most importantly, to get growth up in our economy. The problem we've got as a country is we've had relatively low growth for about, well, several decades. And until we fix that problem, until we carry out the reforms to regulation we need to carry out, until we're able to get more pension funds into high tech businesses and create jobs and opportunities around the country, we're not going to be able to pay for uh, government spending and we're certainly not going to be able to put more money in people's pockets. So growth has to be our number one priority. And so are you pledging that meeting net zero is not going to add to the tax burden? You know, the Treasury has estimated that the costs of net zero will be £60 billion a year. So how can you keep that away from taxation? I'm going to review how we deliver net zero. I think we can do it in a more market-friendly way. I also think it's very important that we're not simply exporting our carbon production. So we need to look at the whole issue of carbon leakage. 
I would have a thorough review of that and also make more use of transition fuels like gas because we know that people are struggling with energy bills at the moment. We need to do all we can to get the transition right so we are able to get to net zero in a cost-effective way. So is that, a, is that a pledge not to add to the tax burden or do you think that taxes may have to go up? My overall plan on taxation is, first of all, to have a thorough review of tax and simplify our taxes. They're far too complicated. I want to make tax better for families. So if you take time out of work to have a child or you're looking after elderly relatives, I want to make the tax system better and simpler for you. And within that context, of course, we have to deliver our environmental objectives. But you can't separate out the different bits of the tax system. What I can say, though, is having the highest taxes for 70 years is a problem and it's a drag on growth and we have to deal with that we have to get growth up through supply side reform as well and you mentioned as one of your pledges around the environment and climate a nature survey which would look at the state of biodiversity in this country one of the things a lot of ecologists are worried about is that tree planting has become such a religion that it's actually contributing to environmental destruction. Is that something you worry about? I mean, your own party has made some some pretty big pledges on trees in the past few years. Well, certainly I, I remember making a pledge on tr- trees when I was uh, Environment Secretary. <laughs> so, and trees are good, you know, trees are a carbon sink. They're, a, they're also important industry, actually. I, rep, I represent a constituency that has a lot of forestry mm-hmm. uh, in it. So uh, We need to look at what is appropriate for Britain. And what my concern is, is the European Natural Habitats Directive was based on what are the endangered species across the whole of Europe. We need something that's much more specific to Britain that is protecting the endangered species, but not necessarily causing massive problems for building for relatively common species. That's that's what I want to do. So it's about helping the economy grow whilst protecting the environment at the same time. Now, obviously, you are unlikely to be Prime Minister uh, in 2050. Um, So how will you hold yourself accountable to the net zero target in the interim, in the time that you have in government? Because it's so easy for politicians to really abandon these targets in practice and leave it to the next government to, to deal with. Well, once I've completed this review of how we achieve net zero, I will publish that and and show how we will get to net zero. But what I want is the opportunity to look at it thoroughly in the round, make sure we're achieving it in the most efficient way. Okay, we'll move on now to the online safety bill, which is another topic spectator readers are particularly exercised about. Do you support it in its current format? I'm a believer in freedom of speech. I also believe that we need to protect particularly the under 18s from harm Mm -hmm. and what I want to make sure with the bill and I know it's now going to the House of Lords is that it it strikes the balance correctly uh, between between those two things. And do you think it does at the moment? Well I need to look into more detail Mm -hmm. about exactly how it is implemented and have discussions with my colleagues but the principles I believe in are the protection of free speech but also making sure that we're not exposing under 18s to harm online. And, you know, I've got two teenage daughters. I am very, very concerned about the effect, particularly social media has mm-hmm. on teenage girls on mental health. Mm-hmm. So I will want to look at that and make sure that that is in, in the right place, as well as protecting freedom of speech, freedom of the press. I'm a great, 
I'm a great believer that those are core freedoms mm. that a healthy society depends on. There's a big difference, though, isn't there, between social media outlets that promote eating disorders, uh, that display sexually explicit content and so on, and one of the things that the spectator is particularly worried about in the bill, which is this new category of legal but harmful, which we think is going to basically outlaw legal free speech. Do you know what legal but harmful means? Well, I think I think there's more there's more nuance in the bill uh, than 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 that, Isabel. But I'd be very keen to talk to the spectator and others <laughs> to make sure the bill delivers what we want it to deliver. And mm. you know, this is a complicated area. I speak to colleagues around the world who are looking at how to legislate uh, for online spaces. You know, the fundamental principle is the rules should be the same online as they are in real life. I think that's a that's a fundamental principle and that's what I will make sure I apply. But as I've said, I want to have a thorough look at it mm. to make sure it delivers the objectives I've set out. You don't agree with the hurt feelings characterization that some of your fellow candidates have used to describe this bill. Well I as I've said I'll need to look at exactly you know these these issues are necessarily complex and nuanced and I think there is a place for further amendments to this legislation to make sure we're delivering it and also make sure that everybody is aware of the intention of the bill as well which is also important so I'm committed to doing that but I think I've set out very clearly the principles I believe in. Okay well we'll move on now to preserving the United Kingdom. Are there any circumstances in which you would agree to a second Scottish independence referendum? No. None at all? Well the last referendum in 2014 was described as a once in a generation referendum and we're now in 2022. That is not a generation ago. And yet the question doesn't seem to have been settled in the opinion polls, does it? Support for Scottish independence goes up and down, but there is still a significant, significant proportion of the Scottish population who are in favour of it or of another referendum. So in terms of the positive case for the United Kingdom, what would you as Prime Minister do to make that? Well, I'm a, I'm a child of the Union. I was brought up in Paisley in Scotland and in Leeds and, you know, it's a very important part of our DNA as a country. You know, we're a family. Uh, that's the way I see it. And the approach I would take, and it's the approach I've taken in government, is we need to show we're a government for the whole of the United Kingdom. Uh, I'm putting more senior foreign office and staff in to make sure that we have people to have consular rep- to, to deal with overseas consulates uh, in Edinburgh, for example. Uh, I've done a lot of work on trade. Uh, getting the Scotch whisky tariffs removed, uh, which has had a really positive impact on distilleries across Scotland. So it's about demonstrating that the UK government is delivering for all parts of the United Kingdom. That's the reason I was so keen to put the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill forward, because without that bill, we wouldn't have seen, you know, the the end of the very difficult situation in Northern Ireland. We haven't had an executive since February, and the bill is absolutely crucial to protecting 
our union. We'll come on to Northern Ireland in a second, but just to, to stick with Scotland um, briefly, would you be holding more cabinet meetings up in Scotland? Would you commit to going to Scotland, I don't know, once a month as Prime Minister? There have been sort of varying levels of attention paid to Scotland by uh, the, uh, the your previous prime ministers in the Conservative Party. I mean, at one point it was suggested that it wasn't a good idea for Boris Johnson to come north of the border. Would you? Would well, you make I regular go, trips? I go to Scotland regularly. And I love it because, and I've, as I said, I went to primary school in, in in Paisley, so it's very it's very fun to me. Do Scots love you? Well, that's a, that's a question for Scots rather than me. <laughs> Some Scots love me. I can tell you that. <laughs> um, the, the, but the important point is not about how many meetings we have and how many visits we do, which of course are important and mm-hmm. it's an important part of ministerial life, is what we actually deliver for people. Mm-hmm. You know, are people's lives better? Do they have more opportunity? You know, are we unleashing the talent? Uh, that's that's what's important. So, And that's true in Paisley as much as it is in Leeds or, or Belfast or, or Cardiff. So what's what I am about as a politician is I'm a politician that gets things done and I will deliver for the people of Scotland as I you know, want to deliver for the people of the whole United Kingdom and that, that will be my focus and approach and I'll look at things on a UK basis first. I think that's very important. Now, you said in this leadership contest that the party has moved on from 2016, but in the EU referendum debate in that year there wasn't that much discussion of the impact on Northern Ireland was there do you regret that obviously you're on the remain side but you've made very clear that you've done everything you can to deliver Brexit opportunities but do you think it came as a shock to everyone in government the implications for Northern Ireland of Brexit what what we've put forward in the protocol bill is a positive solution that works for Northern Ireland and makes sure there's a free flow of trade through red and green lanes and also protects the EU single market because it gives the EU the information they need, the data they need to be able to uh, protect the single market. We're also putting in place uh, rigorous controls. So if there is a violation of moving things outside Northern Ireland, uh, we can deal with that. So this this problem is entirely soluble. You know, there is a solution. My preference is to have a negotiated solution with the EU. But what we put forward in our bill is a solution that works. So this issue absolutely can be resolved. Okay, well, finally, the only thing fiercer than the heat outside as we record this is the leadership contest itself, which has become very energetic. There's been a lot of complaints about negative campaigning. You said you're running a wholly positive campaign, but the truth is that all of you have been tearing chunks out of one another after what has been quite a long period of real instability for your party. So what's the first thing you do to bring the party back together? Well, first of all, it's vital that we have a vision and a plan that people can unite around. And my team of supporters is made up of people from right across uh, the Conservative Party, all parts of the Conservative Party. And in my time as the Foreign Secretary, I've engaged all parts of the Conservative Party, also the Labour Party, the Liberals, other parties as well. I do a lot of MP briefings, I do a lot of discussion. And I think that's important. It's important that when we do new pieces of legislation, for example, one of the things I want to do is abolish the top-down housing targets. It's important we consult with people about 
what the next steps are. So the way to bring people together is to have a clear plan and really listen and engage and have a two-way conversation. We've got lots of talented people in the Conservative Party. I want to make the best use of all of their talents. And we all share the same fundamental desire, whichever you know, caucus or group we're in, and lots of people are in lots of groups that I discovered from all the hustings I've done. Uh, but whatever, you know, we all want Britain to succeed. We all want people across the country to have more opportunities to get a great education to have great local services to be able to start their own business that's you know we're an aspiration party and i think that's a vision you know the vision of the aspiration nation that we can unite behind you pulled out of a televised hustings this week because of the the tenor of the televised debate at least do you think that the contest so far has damaged the tory brand I think it's good that we are having a discussion and there are real issues being discussed. You talked about taxes, Isabel, and that's one of the issues we're discussing. It's good for parties to have those types of discussion. Uh, I'd rather have them internally, mm-hmm. but the modern world doesn't always work like that. Social media doesn't work like that. We're too nosy. <laughs> and uh, Westminster often doesn't work like that. Uh, the, the important thing is, you know, we make a clear decision about, as a party, about our direction. You know, we have the debate with with our members, and then we move on and deliver, and we all get behind the new leader. That's that's what's important. And I think, you know, when people are thinking about how to vote an election, they don't vote about the past; they vote about the future. And sometimes I look at, you know, have you delivered? Are your promises credible? But really, what they're voting on is the future, and that's what we need to be focused on. So do you think the Tory brand is in a negative or a positive place at the moment? It's in a positive place. It's in a positive place. I mean, look, I'm not in any way saying what's what's gone on has been perfect. But, you know, we got a major mandate in 2019. People were fed up, particularly in parts of the you know, north of England, they were fed up with years and years of Labour failure and neglect. And that's why they voted Conservative for something fresh. What we have to do now, and we've got two years to do it, is deliver. And that's what I'm about. That's going to be quite difficult, though. I mean, two years is not a long time in politics at all, is it? It's difficult, but I am up for the challenge. I've shown that I can be tough. I've shown that I can get things through Whitehall, and I will deliver. Liz Truss, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for watching those interviews. And if you are a politics addict, you really should sign up to my Evening Blend email. It's the best read politics newsletter in Westminster. It's got full analysis and a roundup of what has happened in the day's politics and a diary on what to expect next. Sign up at spectator.co.uk forward slash blend. Thanks for listening.